people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. I'm Lydia Lodge, and if you think you know me now, I think you need to know a little bit more about me. There is freedom in vulgarity. I'm not dead. We must be missionaries to bring back those lost sheep. <laughs> hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I am talking to indie slash underground legend Beth B. All about the Metrograph screening of some of her work. Starting on March 10th and running that weekend till the 12th, there will be things like Exposed, Two Small Bodies, Glowing Annie, Lydia Lunch, The War Is Never Over, Black Box, Salvation, and The Dominatrix Sleeps Tonight. Hope you enjoy the interview, and I hope you can check out Beth B's work, which is also coming out through Kino Lorber. So I'm so excited to talk with you. I've been a fan of your work for a long darn time. So I'm uh, such a, a an honor to be able to speak with you today. I mean, th- and this is not your first retrospective. You've done so many retrospectives over the years. Can you tell me a little bit about this one at the Metrograph? There's been kind of this intense focus right now on the films, and some of it is generational. So younger people are really interested in this material, or, you know, people of all ages can be interested in this, the kind of films that I've been making since the late 70s. And the themes, I think, are, they're timeless. They're so current. And what also happened is that Kino Lorber, they acquired my entire library of films, which is pretty extensive, and they restored them. And In doing that, I think that also ignited a lot of energy around the films. And, you know, we had the MoMA retrospective, Museum of Modern Art, and now doing Metrograph, it's more of a theatrical kind of release that Kino Lorber is doing. And then we'll be having box sets. So I'm very excited to hold something in my hand. No, and also in Europe, there's sort of been an explosion of interest in in Europe in all of my films, and uh, I've started kind of a a new festival that we're organizing called Now Wave, and you're the first to hear about it. (laughs) (laughs) Where is that going to be at? I just got back from Paris, and I met with quite a number of people there and from a whole group of people from Switzerland in La Chaux-de-Fonds, where I have done a number of things. And 
they thought it would be really great to bring this together, Paris and La Chaux de Fonds, to create something that is in both countries, but has a kind of a mirror of language and image. And we're bringing in performers and uh, younger filmmakers, older filmmakers. You know, it's 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 really like a mixed media kind of explosion. So it'll be several different events in each of those places and focusing really on the journey of struggle that many of us have found through our lives and in our work and the kind of explorations that I've been doing, but also people I'm working with are bringing me really deep, complex stories that they want to tell. And we're doing those in short form films. So I don't know if that makes any sense to you, Mike, but it's kind of, it's in the works because I was just in Paris and in Paris, there were several venues that showed my work. Paris just seemed to kind of ignite in a very creative way. It really reminded me of the time in the late 70s of no wave. And so I said, hey, let's do now wave. People of all ages with kind of creative energy and people were very embracing. I, I really was quite taken with the experience there. The Pompidou Center brought me over, and then there were other. There's they have a, a gallery called the Film Gallery, devoted only to showing experimental films, and then another venue called La Chapelle, which shows a lot of independent films. So I feel like it's something I, I don't have in the United States anymore. I, I You know, those kinds of venues that embrace all of the arts. I was just rereading your bio and just thinking about the places that you used to have to play your your films way back when, when you're playing like punk clubs and, and Max's Kansas City and, and occasionally the film forum. I mean, just getting your movies out to people at that time must have been such a struggle. The late 70s was so much about specialization. You know, all of the mediums had to be separate. All of the occupations, I mean, everybody goes to school to study one thing. Maybe there's a minor, but usually it's okay. What are you going to major in? And to me, backwards, the creative energy that I think all people can look to embrace moves between all the different arts. And that was what I was really embracing in the late 70s. And the venues were really not up to speed on that. It was like, we show paintings. We show experimental structuralist films. We show you know, very limited rock clubs are for music. So what I found kind of extraordinary is being in a place of deprivation for being able to even show films led to a blowing things up and expanding the notion of what is art, what is cinema, what is a creative experience. And so for me, the galleries, you know, I came out of art school, but, you know, after art school, I was like, ugh, these galleries and museums are so boring and so white and so precious. Sit on your hands, don't make a sound. I'm like, that's not what I want to do. <laughs> and film seemed like it encompassed so many varied possibilities. 
So, you know, making films, but I always have continued to be involved in the fine arts and be involved with music, musicians and painting and just all sorts of things. Like to me, it's the content is most important. That dictates what form I will use, what medium I will use. And so in those days, it was actually pretty great because it was really DIY. And, you know, I was lucky I had a big loft. In those days, $160, huge loft <laughs> in New York City. <laughs> um, and so we would just do big screenings, you know, get a projector, super eight projector and project it right on, you know, the wall. And publicity was really hilarious because, again, New York, it, you know, it was like a big playground because nobody, you know, Nobody wanted to live there. It was just a bunch of artists and uh, it was a bunch of rubble, bombed out buildings, you know, just devastated. But that, in a way, also made it so there were fewer boundaries and uh, there were no rules. And so we would just like plaster, you know, like 20, 30 foot posters handmade across buildings. And that kind of led to the concept of, well, where else? Can we show? And there were so many amazing bands at that time that were coming up. I felt more akin to the kind of music that was going on in the clubs than I did to anything. And the films, at least, that Scott and I were making at that time really were as abrasive, as intense. And it kind of needed a space that could handle that kind of assault visually and you know, visually and through the audio. Clubs have phenomenal sound systems. <laughs> so that became like a, a wonderful uh, venue to show films. And often we would book the bands that we, you know, that would play on the same night. Uh, and then from there, it just kind of expanded. But getting theaters to embrace what we were doing was really quite a struggle. Frankly, you know, I almost feel like when they started to embrace the films, I shouldn't be saying this, but I almost feel like the films we were making at that time became less confrontational. Uh, and the concept of, oh, a movie theater, oh, need to make a feature film, oh, need to, you know, like the those kinds of aspirations. Whereas before that, my I had no interest in those kinds of things. It was really just, you know, a, like, just had to do what I was doing. It wasn't the result or what was going to happen next or, you know, fame, like all the shit. I feel so sorry for film, people who are doing film and art these days, anything creative, like how to do it and support yourself, I think is extraordinarily challenging the world that we're living in. You mentioned the whole DIY aesthetic. Was there a support group as far as the other artists that you were out there making art with? I mean, did you feel like you had people that were in the trenches with you? Oh, yeah. I mean, New York was so different at that time. People left their doors open and you'd be like just walking along the street and, oh, you run into someone and then they go, oh, I'm doing this. Come and see it. And I'm, you know, like, there was a more of a collaborative 
sensibility and like, oh, we're of the same tribe of misfits and outsiders. And yeah, okay, no, you know, we don't have money, but you know what? If we do support each other in a sense, maybe we can do the kinds of things that we want to do. And that, you know, definitely expanded in there was a group of us that formed an organization called Collaborative Projects, also known as Collab. And, you know, it was a group of like, you know, sometimes it would be 20 people, sometimes it would be 60 people, you know, it was like whoever came in the door. And mostly people would just argue about politics or what was going on or this or that, <laughs> creative uh, sensibilities. Uh, but we also put out X Magazine, which was fantastic. You know, there were, I think, two or two issues and put up the Times Square show, which is extremely famous, infamous, and suddenly artists were being like invited to show in galleries. And, you know, things changed at that juncture. It was 1982, 1980, I can't remember. But there was definitely, you know, this feeling of having a community. I feel a bit sad now. I don't, when I go to New York, I don't live there anymore. When I go to New York City, I can't wait to get out of there as fast as I can. Whereas I would cry in those days. If I went out of town and I like was coming from the airport, I would cry at the sight of New York City because it was my home. It felt like a, a kind of a family there. Um, but it's just changed so much and uh, everything's become so exploited and all about money and fashion. And not that I have anything against those things, but it's it's not what makes my heart beat. The way that you are making films changes so much throughout the years. I mean, just you going from Super 8 to 16 to 35, I mean, it must have just been wild to to see those leaps in your own work. I feel extremely lucky, very lucky that I was able to, I've been able to continue making films ongoingly through my entire career. And even when, you know, I did, you know, a couple of really great feature films, uh, Salvation and Two Small Bodies in the early years, and they really were embraced. Uh, and I got to work in 35 millimeter and pay people and work with a crew. You know, I, I, I feel like I've continued to really reinvent myself because at that time, 1994 was Two Small Bodies, which we'll be showing at the Metrograph, as well as quite a number of my films, including Salvation. Salvation is a killer film. It's so funny and so outrageous. And it stars Viggo Mortensen and Exene Cervenka. Uh, Stephen McCaddy uh, has music from New Order and Cabaret Voltaire. People see it today and they're like, oh my God, Beth. It was so prescient. How did you know all this shit was going to happen with these insane televangelists? Because when I made it in 1987, it was just start the the whole television televangelism at Vanderbilt was really exploding. Um, but I saw where there is money, power, control. There is sex, and so the, I just went, okay, I'm going to write, you know write a script that is about that. Anyway, so um, yeah, I've been able to continue making films. But at that time, after making Salvation and Two Small Bodies, and Two Small Bodies, it stars Fred Ward and Susie Amos. 
extraordinary actors. Oh, I mean, and both of them such a delight to work with. And there, it's a two-character piece. And it's so, I loved it because it was like, even though there was a crew, it kind of felt like we were alone in this landscape with them very intimately. And that's kind of hard to accomplish, but I do believe we did it quite beautifully with a lot of heart and a lot of rage that pulses along with sexuality in the film. But after that film, it was like independent filmmaking completely changed in the United States. Suddenly the studios were like, oh, we're going to create like a mini studio for independent filmmaking. And it was impossible to make the kind of films I wanted to make because it was going through the studio structure, really. And it was about what kind of money is this going to make for us? And I've never made films based on that equation <laughs> or that that desired result. And so I had a very hard time after making Salvation to figure out, you know, how how am I going to continue making films? I started making a lot of short films, you know, videos. I went into video. I made a lot of short films, really just doing it all myself, except for the editing. At that point, I was like, I cannot edit. I don't know how to do that. But it was really kind of going back to Super 8 in video in terms of strategy. And so I was con- I, I continued to make some really terrific films. And then I, I made a documentary about juvenile sex offenders. That was like, whoa, took me into some very dark but hopeful places. I investigated. It was, it was I think, my first documentary. I wanted to understand what, what happens to these juvenile sex offenders once they are institutionalized. And at that time, also, a lot of my work, I did a lot of installations with video and sculpture, and it had to do with looking at the system that oppresses people. Or the systems, because we grow up in these systems from the moment we're born. So I was really in this kind of investigation. I went and looked at different facilities where these juveniles were incarcerated. And was there any rehabilitation? And in some, yes, and some, no. But there were a couple that gave me some faith that, okay, some of these boys are going to be okay. Because it's really about this cycle of violence. And it's it's often, most of the time, taught within the home. So how do you arrest that kind of behavior? It doesn't happen in a vacuum. You really need to to look at the intensity of it and the fact that it is passed on from generation to generation. Oddly enough, a friend of mine saw the film and she was working in television. She was like, you should do it. It was like the the... The Wild West in television at that time, like 2000, when suddenly there were all these networks and they, they kind of wanted these like edgy directors. You know? And so she urged me to kind of get involved in it. And I, I pitched an idea, which was to make a documentary for Court TV about Rachel Shelley Shannon, Shelley Shannon, who shot Dr. Tiller, who was performing abortions in Kansas City. And they were like, yes, let's do this. And that wasn't my entry into television. And it was an hour, I I got to do hour-long documentary 
programs with me choosing the subjects. Of course, sometimes they didn't like what I chose. I have to find something else. But it, I was so lucky because I I got to hone my craft. I had a budget. I was making money for the first time in my life, getting paid to do what I love to do. You know, I had a crew. I uh, had material I was interested in. And I think it's really rare, especially for women, to have the opportunity to just, you know, keep making films, keep making films. So I was, you know, involved in in network filmmaking for about eight years. Made a lot. I probably made about 10 hours or more of films. I'm so curious what were some of the ideas were that they, they rejected. Oh, gosh. It all, I don't even know. You know, there was one guy. I mean, it was really extreme. Oh, you know, guy who was living with his family, you know, grandchildren, this, that. The short of it is he was a serial killer. He was killing prostitutes. He was storing them, the dead bodies, up in his attic. The maggots were falling from the ceiling into the children's bedrooms. Yeah. Okay. So it, it kind of got them a little squirmy. I, you know, I go for the extreme. So what can I say? They <laughs> they tempered me a little bit. And then I said, after, you know, it's like after about eight years, it became very corporate and they wanted me to compromise more and more and more. And then I was like, okay, I think I'm finished with this. And I said, I am going to make the most extreme, you know, to me, you know, I am going to make a film with lots of penises and vaginas. And you're not going to tell me I can't do it. <laughs> and I went back to the underground of New York City into the clubs and what was going on. This was in like two, uh, where were we? 2000, probably about 2010, 2010. And in 2010, there was this really burgeoning uh, burlesque scene there. Some of it was very traditional burlesque. Of course, I was not interested in that. But what I started to see was there were some real extreme performers looking at social and political ideas and taking them down to the ground. And these were people who had no other way to express these ideas because performance art had really been shut down. Because of the granting agencies, uh, you know, the, the art venues wouldn't show any. The galleries were like, eh, we really can't make money on this. And so a lot of very, very talented, extraordinary performers found the stages of burlesque where they could deal with issues of, you know, queer, disabled, you know, trans uh, body issues, political issues, all sorts of things. And the film I created was called Exposed. And Exposed is actually the opening night at the Metrograph. It is a celebration of extremes and love. Yeah. And it it has about, you know, eight different performers. And actually, I'll be doing a Q&A with Dirty Martini and Tigger. They have such extraordinary talent but also such big hearts, what they share with the audience. It affected me very deeply making that film. I found kind of a, again, a new way of working, a new way of directing, a kind of an intimacy. And it was all done really small. It was, again, going back after being in television, going back to Super 8, 
but using, you know, SD. So I shot most of it in SD. I think there was a little bit that was uh, high def. But, you know, a, a lot of it I shot with, you know, run and gun, just me. What was that like making the documentary about Lydia Lunch when you have been friends and worker, co-workers for at least 40 years? After I made the film about my mother, Ida Applebrook, and the film Call Her Applebrook, after making Call Her Applebrook, I thought I wanted to focus on other women who had really in- inspired me. And Lydia definitely was one of the people at the top of that list. I had really observed her in the late 70s on stage, and she just presented a whole different concept of female. Open your mouth and fucking get it out. Scream if you must, but say what needs to be said. And my work for many, many years was already about kind of showing the unseen and hearing the unheard. You know, even through Call Her Applebrook, which was about my mother, a lot, you know, amazing painter who a lot of it she did not want to talk about or have seen. But I <laughs> eventually she tr- kind of trusted me to, to make a film that is very intimate. So I, I felt like Lydia, after knowing her since she was 19 and I was 21, or no, I was 23. Lydia was 19, I was 23 when I met her. I felt like it was time to do a deep dive into the things that I understood about Lydia, but also about the things I felt I did not understand about Lydia. And some of them I still do not understand. But I really endeavored to focus more on the deeper, darker side of her personality, of her past, of her childhood, and how that informed and influenced her music and her performance art. And I think it did it quite successfully. And Lydia is terrific to work with. She, you know, is really 100% there. She and I just kind of know how to work together without bullshit. Um, When I first asked her about doing the documentary, she said, so many people have asked me. I can't do the Lydia Lunch invitation. But anyway, she has a very low register. She said that so many people had asked her to do a documentary. And she said, no, 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 no. She said, you, Beth, you get it. I'll do the documentary with you. So, you know, I, I, I think there was a mutual trust and it's a powerful film. People have come to both Lydia and to me afterwards crying and just saying, thank you so much for making this film. It helped me. And I think that for me is the greatest thing a film or any work of art can do is to provoke people to stop, to feel their feelings, to meaning to feel their feelings, to take a pause and then to be able to, in a way, have permission to express one's emotions and to take the secrets out of the closet and to come out of the shame and be able to embrace your your own self. 
and to be able to love oneself. And I, I, I really feel like, you know, the film is very much about compassion. Through all the rage, compassion. <laughs> How did the pandemic affect you? In 2020, Lydia Lunch, The War is Never Over, was scheduled to show at the Rotterdam International Film Festival, as well as I programmed nine programs of filmmakers there. It was an extraordinary program. It was retrospective of a lot of my films, but other films as well. So we did that. It was that Lydia came, she performed live. I mean, it was wild. It was phenomenal. Then we went to Paris. Unbelievable. I mean, it was really like these ecstatic, ecstatic screenings of the film. And then we came back to the United States and we were supposed to go to South by Southwest. One week prior, the pandemic broke out. I was like, holy fuck. I've never been to South by Southwest. You know, I really, <laughs> Lydia was like, oh, phew, glad I don't have to go. Um, <laughs> she's been, you know, so, so it was really like a, uh, a kind of an introspective time for me to look at my career, at what was really important to me and what I wanted to embrace during that time of shutdown. And I realized I wanted, well, a couple of things happened. Oddly enough, Kino, Kino Lorber came and said, we want to acquire Lydia Ludge. So they acquired that film. I was like, oh, in a pandemic? Okay, sure. Risk taking. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then it was like, okay, they acquired that. Then they acquired Two Small Bodies and Salvation. And they just kept acquiring my films and then they acquired the older films. And suddenly there was, you know, there was kind of a, a groundswell of interest in my work. And I had been putting together my archives. Oh, my dear Lord. That is an undertaking. I mean, paper archives. You have to like number every single piece of paper, put it into label it, put it into the Excel document. I mean, it was insane. I had boxes and boxes and boxes. Oh, my God. But I knew it was important to do. And this actually offered me an opportunity to do that, to not be distracted by production or any of that, just to 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 be quiet. I worked uh, with one of my students, Emma Swider, and, you know, it was a reflective time. So I often have to take disasters in my own life or things that I think are disasters or things are not going my way or this is not what I expected to happen, goddammit. And look at them as, okay, what gift is this going to offer me? And I have the ability to change my own attitude and to look at how I can use something that is negative and turn it into something positive for me. And so I did. And I worked during the pandemic to put my archive together. NYU Fails Library has acquired that. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, it was, it's just been kind of crazy. And then Mama said they wanted to do it. So, you know, a lot of wonderful things came out of that period of time. I'm, you know, I, part of me loves to work, but also, you know, w I moved during that time. I moved to Savannah, Georgia, and I love it here. I love it. It's springtime and it's gorgeous. And the people are actually lovely. Of course, I don't talk about politics, um, but you know, we 
we're bringing more Democrats in here, and look what it did. So I'm I'm looking for anybody who wants to move to Savannah. I'll be your friend. It's fabulous here. And so you know that was kind of a bit did it kind of during the pandemic, and uh, and have been thrilled to be here. Yeah, yeah. So when it gets dark, you got to have faith that uh, it's going to be okay. You know, we're going to be okay. Not in, in par- some parts of the world, not. But um, I think individually, we all have the capacity to just, you know, try to find where the light can come from, you know? So you got the whole Metrograph series. You got the Kino Lorber box coming out. You've got potentially a new film festival over in Europe. I feel guilty, but I'm going to have to ask it. What else are you working on? Oh, I can tell you about my new films. My, I, I've started a whole two different series of short films. And one of them is called Glowing, and the other one is called Against the Door. And two of them will be showing at the Metrograph. One is called Glowing Evelyn, and the other is called Glowing Annie. And they're really about kind of the journey through pain, through the pain of life, through the pain of love, and a coming to perhaps a transcendent or accepting place in one's life. So I have Annie Bandez, who is little Annie, musician, really New York icon. So there's a 13-minute film about her with some of her extraordinary music, but it really is telling a story through the use of speaking, through music, and through visuals. It's kind of my new experimentation. It's it's a bit a bit hybrid, maybe because it is doc. It's a sense of documentation, perhaps. So I'm just kind of really figuring it out. And the other series is called Against the Door, and they're you know I don't really like to see near death stories, but they are kind of like, but they're they're. Not the conventional near-death story, like, oh, I saw the light, no, oh, there was the door. No, that's not, it's, they're not like that. And this is actually a project that was brought to me by Jim Coleman, who is, he's from Cop Shoot Cop, extraordinary seminal band, 90s. And his more recent project is Human Impact with singer Chris Spencer from the from the Unsane, the band. And Jim started to work on these stories, and he's been my collaborator for 27 years. When I met him in CBGB's upon the invitation of Richard Kern. So unbelievably, Richard Kern, filmmaker, introduced me to my 27-year relationship with Jim Coleman, who is my soulmate and the composer of you know, of all the films since then. Yeah, yeah. It's a great collaboration, extraordinary collaboration with him. We just are merged in this creativity. So he brought me this. He recorded a couple that I was like, oh, yeah, I can see these. I can visualize these. So we just recorded a new one with Vincent Dubois, who is from Le Chaux de Fonds in Switzerland. And it's a very powerful and emotional story that's autobiographical for Vincent. And I was filming just now in Paris 
with Vincent while I was doing all these other activities in Paris. Uh, and that, it won't be shown at the Metrograph because we were just filming, but, you know, it will be shown quite soon. But the concept is maybe to create feature length or hour long shows with the shorts, but also the next thing we're doing in Paris is going to be live performance with the musicians, the person who is doing the speaking of the story and projection. So I'm kind of going into a whole other realm of live performance, music, film, exploration. <laughs> wow. Never too late to try new stuff. No, but I mean, that's what life is to me. The most extraordinary part of it is to keep reinventing, keep trying things. I don't know if this is, you know, like what is, I also, you know, it's like, what is success? You know, people have such a fucking distorted perception of success because of the media, because of Hollywood, because of, you know, money, all of that. And that, those things are not success to me. To me is if I have like a really fulfilling, positive, productive, illuminating experience, creating something, it's the process, it's the progress. It's not necessarily the the object or the result or it, 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 so you know to me that's that's what keeps it really exciting because i have no expectations of what it, that's what i'm saying to you i don't know what it's going to be it's going to be well i <laughs> it'll be something yeah and as long as you have a good time making it absolutely absolutely yeah and well beth thank you so much for your time this was so great talking with you it's great talking to you mike i really really appreciate it, enjoyed it, and I hope people will come to the Metrograph. May, uh, please, people, come to the Metrograph. March 10th is our opening, and it's going to be phenomenal celebration with Dirty Martini and Tigger, and I will be there for Q&A, and uh, it's, it's a wild New York film. <laughs> <laughs>